I attend Westmoreland up on Massachusetts Avenue, and when our chaplain, the then well-known civil rights anti-war troublemaker William Sloan Coffin came to speak at my church, he looked out, he was a big guy with Ursine with a great voice, and he said, you know, they tell me UCC stands for Unitarians considering Christ. <laughs> or utterly confused Christians. <laughs> and so I stand before you quite humbly, and I look forward to joining you in the service uh, after our talk. I'm gonna to try to go quickly because I know I stand between you and your God, and I wanna make sure that we get out here uh, on time. I do wanna talk about Rachel Carson and how her environmental ethic evolved, how it underscores and undergirds what our organization, the Rachel Carson Council, does, as John began to allude to, and thank you for those overkind uh, introduction. And so, as I stand here at St. John's, I want you to know the contributions of Episcopalians to this effort, at least to Anglicans. I know that I'm well aware of the difference. Uh, however, all that we do, those of you who've helped to uh, build creation care in this church, those of you who are engaged with the environment and justice issues uh, in any way, have a great debt to the Reverend Gilbert White. Gilbert White wrote in 1789, the natural history and antiquities of Selborne in England, and then later appended a natural calendar. What that means is that he uh, was the first widely known beloved writer. It was said of Gilbert White that he was the fourth most popular writer in the English language after the Bible, Shakespeare, and Pilgrim's Progress. And he laid out not only uh, a kind of observation of both the scientific, the phenology, the changing of the seasons, he kept track, uh, he helped to invent the uh, Christmas count of birds. You may think it's the Audubon Society, but it's the Reverend White. And uh, he had also something that I think is important for our understanding of, of why we're here, and that is and my biblical text for today, you don't do biblical texts? I'm gonna do an altar call at the end where I'm gonna ask you to come on up front and join me, is inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. And that's important to understand Rachel Carson, the Rachel Carson Council, and it begins with the Anglican Reverend White who wrote of the earthworm amidst these wonderful writings that he did. He says, earthworms, though in appearance a small and despicable link in the chain of nature, yet if lost, would make a lamentable chasm. Worms seem to be the great promoters of vegetation, which would proceed but lamely without them. The lowly Worm. The least of these, 
the despicable creature, the other, something very, very far removed from our species, from our lives, from our understanding, unless you see creation linked, connected, even unto the smallest things. I, uh, I'm going to... John was good enough to mention that I write books. Of course, they are in the back for sale. <laughs> Sorry. But I, I just, uh, as I was writing a nature journal myself, inspired partly by Gilbert White, partly by John Burroughs, by Rachel Carson, and others who had walked around this area, Washington, D.C., in spring. So this Washington in spring, a nature journal. While I was out on the canal, I came upon a buzzard, basically a vulture. And so I had for a moment this inkling, this understanding about the other, the least of these. So I just wanted to get a little reflected glory from Gilbert White and just read you very briefly one little section called A Buzzard Beauty. A thing of beauty is a joy forever, but would Keats have meant a vulture? In the background of my rasping flycatcher sits majestically some buzzard. It is close at hand and in my sights, so it looks as huge and mighty as an eagle. It is posed upon a large log that has fallen to make an ideal artist's stand. The wingtips are white. The tail is short. The head is black. It is not a turkey vulture. Soaking up the sun, the rays upon its back is a black vulture resting, warming up, its giant wings spread wide in full repose. Shades of color on its back that I have never seen amidst the shining ebony. Subtle browns and coppers and charcoal gray glint against the black. Its feathered wingtips are spread out, each one with six long, shimmering, separated feathers that reflect the steady sunlight to our rear. It was buzzards that Mary Austin celebrated when writing of scavengers out in the western desert. This woodland vulture near me deserves my new respect. It cleans up after all the predators out here who leave behind remains to rot. But because it lives off such fetid, horrid stuff, soars high above the dead, we revile vultures of all kinds. I stand and briefly try to worship along with this grand and glorious bird. I spread my arms in kinship and glance upward toward the sky. That is the essence from White to me to Rachel Carson, who, as you will recall, was a marine biologist trained at Johns Hopkins, who got her values directly through the kind of combination of faith and science and action that we're talking about. Her mother was the largest influence on her and her ethic. That means her mother was a very devout Presbyterian whose father, the Reverend Daniel McLean, was a learned Presbyterian minister from Western Pennsylvania, who through his daughter Maria and on to Rachel, inculcated, taught, 
lived, showed respect for all things, for the other, for all creatures, for caring and taking responsibility for our time here on earth and God's creation. Rachel's mother, Maria, was a brilliant woman. In the late 19th century, she took advantage of the finest opportunities available in Western Pennsylvania for women. At the time, she attended the Washington Female Seminary. She was top of the class by far. History, rhetoric, science, languages. She was so good, in fact, they let her take a couple of courses at the adjacent men's college, <laughs> Washington College. She, of course, became a teacher, the only profession open to learned women at the time. And as soon as she married, she had to quit. Late 19th century, not pregnant, not showing, just married, you had to quit. And so she poured all of that learning, that concern, into her youngest, brightest, and clearly favorite child, Rachel Carson. She used a curriculum by another woman who wrote a book called The Handbook of Nature Study. Anna Bosford Comstock is her name. You don't need to know that. There is no final exam here, except when we meet St. Peter. And in it, and, and Rachel's mom used this curriculum to take her around in experiential learning, to care about little creatures, to feel for them. Rachel Carson always said, feeling is far more important than mere knowledge. And so she, unless you love something, you cannot really understand it and care for it. And so Rachel, following her mom with the curriculum from this woman out in the woods, said as a child, Animals are my friends. She wrote a little book for her dad at four with kid illustrations about a story of Mr. and Mrs. Wren looking for a house. And that anthropomorphization, that childhood story, infuses her work so that her very first book, Under the Sea Wind, was written, inspired in North Carolina along the beaches and coasts where she worked with the Bureau of Fisheries, now the US Fish and Wildlife Service. And in it, she uses a similar technique in which she sort of anthropomorphizes. I know scientists, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to feel about animals or talk as if they have feelings or any of that kind of stuff. But she begins, I'm gonna watch my time here. If you haven't read Under the Sea Wind, I know you've all, you've all read Silent Spring many times, <laughs> right? <clears throat> I won't tell the undergraduate jokes of who knows who Rachel Carson is and who doesn't, because I don't have time. But, uh, but her first book, 1941, just before World War I, Under the Sea Wind, is about the creatures in the sea and along the shore and what we know about them of the science of 1941. And so the book opens. Rachel has been there not only working at the Bureau of Fisheries, but lying on the beaches at night, listening to the surf and the tinkle of the shells, hearing the distant cries of night birds. And one evening, as it's turning toward dusk and evening, she opens her book. This is on the Outer Banks of North Carolina in Beaufort, where there is a Rachel Carson Reserve. 
The island lay in shadows, only a little deeper than those that were swiftly stealing across the sound from the east. With the dusk, a strange bird to the island came to the island from its nesting grounds on the outer banks. Its wings were pure black, and from tip to tip their spread was more than the length of a man's arm. It flew steadily and without haste across the sound, its progress as measured and meaningful as that of the shadows which little by little were dulling the bright water path. The bird was called Ringkops, the black skimmer. Ringkops and a sanderling and a mackerel named Scomber and an eel named Anguilla are the heroes of this book. We are under the ocean with them. They're dodging predators. They're reproducing. They're going to the Sargasso Sea. We share their being, their existence. We care about them. And if you can feel for a mackerel or an eel, (laughs) you have begun to understand the environmental ethic that undergirds much of what Rachel Carson had to say in the work that we do is founded upon. And so if we take our biblical text about caring for the least of these, if we add some science and understanding, some poetry and feeling, we have Rachel Carson at her best as a nature writer, but what about justice? These are modern times we're in. It's fine to care for the whales and the polar bears and the monarchs, as we all do. What about the people? And so if you haven't read Silent Spring lately, you will see, you will recall, I usually call on undergraduates. I don't do it with mature citizens like yourselves. What's Silent Spring about? Anyone? This is where I usually do my Forrest Bueller's Day Off bit. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? DDT, right? And? Birds. Birds. That's enough. Perfect. (laughs) Extra credit. (laughs) So that means it's about birds, and it's particularly well known. Rachel understood the problem of robins, and I write in my book about Rachel Carson and her sisters, why do we care about robins? Did you ever think about that? There's a whole long reason available in the back of the room on why we care about robins. But most people say DDT, yes and birds. And later on, her colleagues who helped found the Rachel Carson Council, because she was dying of breast cancer writing Silent Spring, said, I want a group to carry on my work. And the first head of that group, Shirley Briggs, is actually the one who worked with others. When you know about uh, uh, peregrine falcons and the thinning of eggshells and the difficulties of reproduction because of DDT, that work is carried on from Rachel's work. But in Silent Spring, she talks about us, about humans, about the potentiality of cancer and other diseases from DDT. She talks about how horrible it is that farm workers in California are exposed to these chemicals, that they are harmed. Later, she writes about nuclear testing and nuclear weapons, and she writes about how unjust it is 
the open-air nuclear testing, go the radioactive elements go through the food chain and enter on up to harm Inuit mothers in the Arctic nursing their babies. That's far away from the robins. I love robins too. But Rachel cares more deeply. She wrote the first expose, or at least the introduction to the first expose of CAFOs in this country. That's factory farms, concentrated animal feeding operations. Thousands and thousands of hogs or chickens or turkeys jammed in in cages, fed antibiotics and growth hormones, never see the light of day, and we eat them. I actually do. Sorry to report. Rachel wrote that in Animal Machines, a book by her friend Ruth Harrison in 1964, just before she died. And so she not only cared about the pigs, she was worried about the consumers, the workers, the injustice of it all. Where did she get those ideas? Uh, <clears throat> maybe Presbyterian, I don't know. But I think more likely you should understand that Rachel Carson sees this all linked, not only through God's creation and creation care, but through evolution. Most of her books talk about how the earth was formed, the eons that it took, how the oceans took form, how, the, how life literally crawled out of the oceans and onto the land, and that if you understood the mystery and the miracle that that has happened in each one of these characters. The worm, the vulture, the eel are linked to us inexorably. You would begin to understand. But the justice part comes pretty much, I believe, while she was studying genetics and the leading uh, evolution genetics at Johns Hopkins. Rachel grew up poor. She had her whole family to take care of. Uh, a ne'er-do-well father, what can I say? Some siblings and nieces who also got into trouble. Uh, she cared for them all while a full-time PhD student at Johns Hopkins with a full scholarship that did not cover her tuition. She was a half-time research assistant. She taught two adjunct courses, all commuting by bus between Baltimore, College Park, and caring for the entire family. The half-time job that she had as a research assistant was for two of the most prominent biologists of the time. Their names were Raymond Pearl and Maud DeWitt Pearl. Like almost every reputable scientist at the time in the late 20s, they believed in eugenics. This is where I test the undergraduates again, you know, or have them spell it. Language of origin. Uh, you, know, you all know from the Greek eugenics, good genes, improve the genes. Then I say, how do we improve them? By getting rid of the wrong races, of people who are what were considered imbeciles, handicapped, all this whole list of words that we don't even use anymore. That was eugenics. You will recall the case in which eugenics was upheld and forced sterilization was upheld by Mr. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who won the case of a young woman. The question was whether to cut her tubes, tie her tubes, or not. He announced his decision saying, two 
generations of imbeciles is enough for sterilization. It turns out that this young woman, later evidence and understanding was that she was not retarded. She had in fact been raped. And this was the ruling science of the time when Rachel Carson was at Hopkins. But these two biologists were among the very first studying modern genetics, looking into these questions, and finally they said, this is definitely fake science, fake news. We no longer believe this. We can see that people are linked through evolution and genetics. They denounced eugenics, and these two white, internationally prominent biologists joined the NAACP. These were the people that Rachel Carson was working for. Later, the story goes on. Her good friend and literary agent was a woman named Marie Rodell. Now, there are just a couple of people in the audience who may know, no one in this audience is old enough to remember Helen Gahagan Douglas. Don't. I offer senior counseling. <laughs> oh my God. Well, you then will know that Richard Milhouse Nixon uh, called her the pink lady. She's no better than Vito Marcantonio. It goes on and on, right? And so Mr. Nixon ran his first campaign for the Senate against Helen Gahagan Douglas and beat her, and the rest is, as we say, history. Marie Rodell handled the works of Helen Gahagan Douglas. This is pretty progressive for the late 40s, but even better. Comes 1957, while Rachel is beginning Silent Spring, and her best friend and literary agent brings out, helps to get published, the first book by a little-known Southern Baptist preacher. The book is called Stride Toward Freedom by Martin Luther King, Jr. That is the milieu. That is the sense of justice that Rachel Carson is immersed in, in 1957. That is among the reasons that she had a sense of justice. I've mentioned a number of things that she cared about. I don't have time to give you the quiz and whether she knew about global climate change or not. The answer is yes, through her friend Roger Revelle, who taught Al Gore at Harvard and built the facilities that measure CO2 on the uh, Mauna Loa volcano. As I tell undergraduates, it's not active. It's not active. They, they built you know, this thing up there to measure the CO2. And so all of those issues are seen as connected and part of a larger issue that we're up against, which is the humanities hubris, our arrogance, our scientism, our greed that Carson wrote about over and over and over again. That long-range project to educate, to have people feel, to care, to love other creatures, is part of what Rachel Carson's work is about and is part of the larger project of the Rachel Carson Council. There is a reason. People say, well, why do you organize about 
hogs in North Carolina. It's, it's a pretty funny thing to do. Well, the answer links all of our subjects that we work on at the Rachel Carson Council. That is, these CAFOs, you may know, there are nine million hogs in North Carolina. Just a few more than the number of people in North Carolina. Hogs seem to poop. What am I? We'll say poop. They poop four times as much as humans. And so the wastes from these hogs is the equivalent of all the human feces that go into our water systems and sewage from California, New York, Texas, New Jersey, North Carolina, and several smaller states put together. And all of it is focused in two counties in eastern North Carolina, in Sampson and Duplin counties. Guess who lives there? Many Episcopalians live, <laughs> live in Duplin and Sampson Well, I don't know about that. Uh, you will see if you, I brought too much literature, forgive me, I printed stuff out, which is a no-no for environmentalists. But if, uh, if I had PowerPoint, but I'm trying to save electricity, you could see this map. That's North Carolina, you can see some black and red and so on. Enterprising friend of mine, uh, now died of cancer, unfortunately, a, a public health uh, professor from UNC North Carolina and his graduate students, helped to map where the CAFOs are and with an historical perspective, you will not be shocked to learn that these nine million hogs live in the densest part of what was slavery in North Carolina and then Jim Crow, and then segregation, and then inequalities, and then the lack of political representation, the people who still live near these CAFOs have tried to bring nuisance suits. I listened to a guy on the floor of the North Carolina legislature who owns one of these CAFOs. Doesn't smell bad to me. I bring the grandchildren out. They don't seem to mind. He took a bill written by the Smithfield Corporation that is now a subdivision of the Chinese holding group, WH group. They wrote the legislation and he brought it to the floor directly, Representative Dixon of Eastern North Carolina, to prevent nuisance suits against the crap flowing, stinking, polluting, ruining the water, causing climate change from the methane. We struggled mightily. We got a partial victory after a long, long campaign in which 17 suits and 500 families are allowed to go forward, but that will not be possible in the future unless the entire North Carolina legislature changes. And we're actually working on that, but I don't want to do, <laughs> digress too much. The part that is so... Um, troubling about these justice questions in North Carolina, I've mentioned the hogs. There are chicken CAFOs. We have another piece of literature back there. This one is called Pork and Pollution. It's on a big report we did. The next one is called Foul Matters. <laughs> I, I know, I wrote the pun. It's terrible. But <clears throat> anyhow, 
There, here in, well, we're not in Maryland. I live in Maryland, you know, a couple of miles away. There are nearly 30 million chickens. And guess what? Similarly kept in cages, etc. the whole thing in the chicken poop is not good for the water, the pollution, climate change, and the rest. And those chicken CAFOs in Maryland are located in one county, Somerset County. Most of you know that Eastern Shore is also the home and history, proud history of African Americans in this nation. Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and the folks who still live there and try to struggle for their homes, their livelihood. And of course the people inside these places, they're those nasty immigrants that we don't want. In conditions that I don't have time to describe, but you can only imagine. And so what we're trying to do now is link up. John mentioned wood pellets. This is something I suspect you don't know about the problem of wood pellets, right? Oh, thank you. That's good. That's the, I was looking for that. Uh, you pretty well covered the simple version. Thanks to some strange counting rules under the Paris Accords and what you can count uh, as green under these international accords to try to prevent climate change, there is a counting rule that allows the members of the EU and England, whether they're in or out of the EU, uh, to purchase huge industrial loads of wood pellets, not a little stove that hippies and Vermonters used to have you know, with a couple of wood pellets. We're talking major industrial style. They co-burn them with coal, or they take and re retrofit a coal-fired utility and burn these wood pellets. The idea is that it's renewable. The only problem is that it actually gives off more pollution and more problems than coal itself. Meanwhile, back in the States, Inviva Corporation that runs most of these things, which is headquartered in Bethesda, if you see mild-mannered Yale man locked to the gates of Inviva, no, <laughs> clear-cut the forests. And again, all of these operations that I'm describing, including natural gas pipelines that are headed toward North Carolina, all run through the areas. Heavily African-American, poor people, Native Americans, the Lumbee Nation, and others. And so we have been working mightily with other organizations with people in North Carolina, nationally here on Capitol Hill, and on our campuses where we get young people, a whole new generation involved. Because frankly, as youthful, oh, excuse me. Does anyone have any leave? I could uh, never dance in front of an audience. As youthful as I feel, I've only got a couple of decades left in me, maybe. And so we are grooming finding, recruiting, creating fellows. We now have a fellows program of seven Rachel Carson Council fellows on campuses doing projects on wood pellets, pollution, solar energy, food insecurity that help expand our work. I hope you'll want to support that effort. And I do go and harass undergraduates and what they know about Silent Spring and finally why they should become involved because all of these issues affect all of us. We cannot stand by. Rachel Carson was wont to quote Abe Lincoln all the time, to remain silent 
Silent Spring has more than one meaning. To remain silent when we should protest makes cowards of us all. This is demure Rachel Carson. And so I am going to do an altar call. I'm going to ask you to come on up front. But first, I want to do two things. If I can do this quickly, John. I need I, one minute. Yeah, or 30 seconds. I need an organ going in the background. But basically, uh, Rachel Carson only was able, because of her health, not only cancer, other issues, to give one commencement address in her life. Scripps College for Women in California. And she urged them, after saying, we now wage war on other organisms, turning them against all the terrible armaments of modern chemistry, we assume a right to push whole species over the brink of extinction. So nature does not need protection from man, but man too needs protection from his own acts. Your generation must come to terms with the environment. Your generation must face realities instead of taking refuge in ignorance and evasion of truth. Yours is a grave and a sobering responsibility, but it is also a shining opportunity. And so I am always moved. As I was, I had the honor, the opportunity to speak at Bennett College in North Carolina, where we organize. It is one of two historically black women's colleges in the nation. I stood in the pulpit where Martin Luther King Jr. spoke. And the, you know the story of the Greensboro sit-in and the four young men who sat in. You don't know the story of the African-American women from Bennett who actually enlarged those protests, brought in more people, and had it continue onward. This is the tradition at Bennett College. And I closed, as I will now, Martin Luther King Jr. And he was drawing on the tradition that I've tried to allude to of other religious worthies, frankly. Reverend Theodore Parker, although he was a Unitarian. Abolitionist, polymath, incredible man. He is the one who said the moral arc of the universe bends long, but it bends toward justice. But Martin is the one who gave it wings and soul and calls us but you know, God does not call on us to watch magic. We are called on to do the work. The moral arc of the universe does not just bend because of physical principles. It bends because of us and what we do and what we choose to do with our lives. And so I call on you to join with me. I will keep at this until I drop. And the moral arc of the universe bends long. But only if you and I together work to bend it for justice. questions, um, very few, but okay. yes, go ahead. This isn't exactly a question, but I think it may help this audience to make the leap. I was living in North Carolina when Hurricane Floyd hit in the late 90s, and it ended up dumping 56 inches of rain over five days in the region you were talking about. 
and flooded that whole area with feces from... And dead hogs. Yeah. Uh, oh, thank you. I, I'm supposed to be an organizer. I forgot to hand out the sign-up sheet. <laughs> if you have any interest, please... And it'll be in the back, too. Yeah, okay. Onward. Another question? Yes, ma'am. Is there any uh, institution or process in place to recycle poop, animal poop? There is, and it's an interesting and difficult and controversial question. It goes like this. Um, there are folks who want to capture the methane from feces and turn it into what is called biogas and then build pipes and link it to natural gas, which is the pipeline coming down. Um, it's recycled. If I were from the Smithfield Corporation, so they spray it onto fields, supposedly as manure. Uh, it's filled with toxins. It further spreads this pollution around. But the difficult question is, I try to distinguish in terms of justice. There's fixing global climate change for comfortable people, wealthy people, and those who aren't. This methane capture idea is in favor. There are experts at Duke University and various scientists and very large environmental groups. You know, we're never going to get rid of CAFOs. We're never going to stop those hogs from living 10,000 cheek by jowl. So let's at least capture the methane. That's the kind of perspective that doesn't think about either the hogs inside or the people who live next door. And so there isn't a, a, a serious one, but there is some interesting controversy about what to do with the methane coming out of the poop. Another question? Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, we ask your counsel to the minute, perhaps, to approach the United Nations environmental mission to educate the Europeans not to consume so much wood pellets because the Europeans are the most consumer of the wood pellets. Excellent. I, have we approached UN and others to try to pressure, convince, help Europeans not to use wood pellets? Uh, the Rachel Carson Council is not yet big enough, but that's why I'm here. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we work with people who are bringing lawsuits, who are working with people in England in particular, where the company called Drax is one of the larger consumers of wood pellets. Uh, I'm in touch with people in Germany. There's a Rachel Carson Institute there. Uh, so there are people working on the European side, but it's hard for American groups. We're, we're, we're working on it, and the UN's an excellent idea. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, when did the Rachel Carson Council start? Is it headquartered here in D.C., and how large is it? Um, I'll give you two honest answers and one fake one. Uh, as I mentioned, Rachel was dying of breast cancer, so she said almost on her deathbed, will you carry on my work? She died in 1964, we put things together. Marie Rodell, her literary agent, Shirley Briggs, the first head, formed the Rachel Carson Council in 1965. Yeah, and it, we have, uh, quite frankly, the presidential office is in my home in Bethesda, and the Washington office is at 20th and M. So we are headquartered in Washington, yes. size. Small but mighty and growing. John didn't elaborate. I just wanted to make one remark on it. Is I had been with the Rachel Carson Council for quite a while, and it was really focused on getting out the news about the uh, cancer drug, cancerous uh, materials and stuff. Uh, what Bob has brought is activism. 
So I just want, that was, he probably wouldn't talk about that shift was to become more of an activist organization using the tools of social media connected and in particular uh, really getting this intern program. And I mean, I can tell you, it's inspiring to hear these young college come out with major studies that are being promoted on the Hill. But the truth when I say small, we started when the group had fallen on hard times, so it was basically a reboot. Uh, so we have uh, about four staff, about 10,000 people who belong and are active, um, but this is, keeps growing mightily. There are 54 colleges that are part of our network where there are about 5,000 academics and faculty engaged. But if you compare that to the Sierra Club or NRDC with a million members and multiple tens of millions, we're a much better investment now. <laughs> <laughs> one, one more. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, that's partly because uh, I, this is my secular ministry. My mother, all my uncles, my grandfather, and more ancestors than you want to know were preachers. And I believe it's seriously, I like coming here, despite the jokes about Episcopalians and UCC, to speak from my whole being as a liberal Christian engaged with creation care. And yes, I work with uh, GWIPL and the Interfaith Power and Light and many others. Uh, in, in North Carolina, we work with Reverend Barber and Moral Mondays. We've been out demonstrating, working with him. Um, so yes, it's an important and growing part. So with that, I want to thank Bob on behalf of all of us. <laughs>